This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, my only love sprung from my only hate, the enemies to lovers trope in speculative fiction. Ah, enemies to lovers. <laughs> that old chestnut. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, you're right, it is an old chestnut, but there's been a huge upswing in the popularity of the trope lately, mm. which got me thinking. Um, and I don't know, I think sometimes my brain is a barely tamed house cat and it just sort of wanders <laughs> off when I'm doing stuff. Um, but I was driving home and... For some reason, I started thinking about a trilogy of books that really, really annoyed me several years ago, which is a random thing to think when you're driving home. Mm. And I'm like, but many people would say that's the enemies to lovers trope, but it wasn't satisfying. I'll, I'll explain the books later, but mm. it wasn't satisfying. It wasn't something I could get behind. And I suppose I spent the rest of the drive home thinking, well, what makes it work? What makes it not work? Uh, not just for me, but in, in general terms. Yeah. So... We've kind of touched on it before in our um, un- unusual romance type episode, mm. but I think this one bears closer inspection. Yeah, I completely agree. It Because you're right, I think it it's very Marmite for me, because if it's not done in a very specific way, I tend to actually kind of feel quite grossed out by it. Yeah. But when it's done properly, like, mmm, that, like that, that'll get me. That'll wind me in. But it's got to be really specific. Yeah. Um, Okay, so in case people don't know what it is, (laughs) the enemies to lovers trope is when the protagonist and the, or one of the antagonists, become the the romantic pairing for a group. For a group? For a book. For a A group. Ooh, that was a bit of a slip. (laughs) (laughs) For a book. So they they don't start off as friends. They don't start off even liking each other. In fact, they're actively opposed to each other. They're in each other's way. It's it's not as simple as, I don't like this guy. And it's a romance that starts off on a bad foot. Many romances do that. This is they're actively against each other. Yeah. Now, as Jules said, this can be the main antagonist or it could be one of the antagonists. So, for instance, you might have... Uh, a story where there are multiple antagonists. Um, to give you an example, not that I'm saying this is a romance, though there are many people who say who would say that it was. Uh, Draco Malfoy was an antagonist to Harry Potter, but he wasn't the only antagonist, obviously, in the whole story. No, absolutely not. So you could have it that kind of thing, where it's there's a there are small antagonists and then there's a larger antagonist, or they could be the big antagonist as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, Anyway, it can be done as a subplot or it can be the main plot of the book. You certainly find it a lot in things like romantic fantasy. So Mm. where the fantasy is kind of like the dressing up component for the romance. Yeah. Um, And done well, it can be very satisfying because we love a good antagonist as much as we love a good protagonist. Completely agree. Yeah. Um there's several ways that it kind of be it can it can be accomplished. Um, but one is, you know, it, it can be forcing the main character and the antagonist to fight on the same side against a worse enemy or because their goals align. So, yeah, this is when it's a smaller antagonist figure and it's, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of situation. They've yeah. got to work together. 
Um, I've definitely seen this done where you have like it's been it's a long series and you've got three books where they're really at each other's throats whenever they meet but they're not necessarily or maybe they even are the main opposition to each other and then suddenly book four comes along and it's like oh there's something way worse and it's like I suggest we team up and everyone's like oh no we can't team up with you you're evil etc well it's, it's it's the Tom and Jerry thing yeah. I always really liked the episodes where Tom and Jerry had to come together to fight and become pals because yeah. they had a, there was a greater antagonistic force. I just really liked those episodes. <laughs> True enemies to lovers. I'm joking. Um, but, you know, you know what I mean? Interspecies as well, apparently. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean is that, yeah, sometimes you get that those sort of stories where, yeah, they've, they've been the long, long enemies, but there is a greater force that's coming. Um, I mean, uh, you get that in Game of Thrones where... Um, you know, Thormund (laughs) enemies to lovers you've got the Night Watch against the Wildlings and then the Wildlings and the Night Watch basically have to come together and become a group I mean, Thormund and Jon Snow there's an enemies to lovers narrative (laughs) anyway, I'm sorry, I'll stop messing around but yes, that can work quite well or you can have one of them misunderstand the other, or both of them misunderstand each other initially. Yeah, I mean, Sarah J. Mass jives off of this one in particular. Yes, she very much does. Mm. Um, we will talk about Sarah J. Mass a bit later. Not, and not in a negative way. I'm, I'm putting that out there now. We're, we're going to focus on the good work. The good works. That still came off really negative, didn't it? it? And really I'm so did. trying. <laughs> God. Try harder. Okay. Um, you can also have you can have it by one or the other of them being forced to undergo a fundamental perspective shift. So, you know, they've been forced to reevaluate the path they're on, um, or kind of relook at what they're doing. I mean, I think weirdly, one example of this, which is also um well <laughs> Uh, Bulma and Vegeta from Dragon Ball Z (laughs) when they first meet they're obviously enemies Vegeta is one of the big bad Um, and by the end the two of them are married they have they have a child together yeah Um, he's obviously been had had to have this fundamental perspective shift from the situation he was in but also it was about teaming up against a greater foe Um, so yeah, this is one has been obviously used for for quite a while. I still I think, think it's a weird pairing. <laughs> I think also Shira, yeah, and the princesses of power. I mean, obviously Adora has that big perspective shift at the beginning and goes, "Oh, what if I'm the bad guy?" Um, and then later on, as I understand it, um, Katra kind of not is forced to have that same sort of perspective shift. Mm. Yeah, as well. So, I mean, yeah, that that can be fun. I think the main thing is that because all the time that you've got the pair of them fighting and not getting on, mm. um, when you have two characters who are fighting and not getting on, there is sort of a reverse chemistry thing going on there. So mm. there are sparks. And where there are sparks, there's potential for flame, as it were. Um, so that, that's not to say for every pair of uh, antagonistic characters that that would work. But with some of them, it's a case of, okay, in some ways you get her better than anybody else does because you're actively against her and vice versa. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, 
I mean, that, they say that, you know, love and hate, you know, are the same thing, just, you know, part of the same line, as it were. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you dedicate a huge amount of time to thinking about another person, <laughs> perhaps because they're your enemy, or, but, but you know, clearly they're, they're on your mind a lot. <laughs> you know, you're dedicating a lot of time to thinking about them. You can understand how how that can switch over yeah absolutely um and we've got some great examples to talk about a bit including three that i forgot to put down so i'm really sorry i might just add to those no problem in a moment. <laughs> um let's look at how no let's look at it when it works the sort of things that that make this sort of trope work yeah so i think one of the big ones is that it's the moment when both characters realise that there is more that unites them than ultimately divides them. Yeah, definitely. I think a good example of this is a book I recommended way back called How to Win, How to Lose the Time War. Mm. And you've got two characters who are basically travelling through time and they're pitted against each other by their respective companies. Um, and they never really meet face to face to start with they just leave each other little notes as in sort of like i've foiled your plan kind of thing and they're irritating the hell out of each other there's a genuine i hate you like poison feeling mm. until about sort of a third of the way through the book it's like okay you might be the only person in the universe who actually understands me too two-thirds of the way through it's like i want to write you poetry <laughs> and it's so beautifully done it is the ultimate enemies to love it won't be for everybody because it's quite a a literary take on a sci-fi novel um but it is the most beautiful enemies to love a story it's really really well done it makes me think a little bit of the night circus yeah but, i mean obviously those two they weren't ever they were sort of pitted against one another um and they were in competition but their love for one another just grew out of that instead yeah and ultimately, they kind of went, actually, I think you might be the only person who understands the situation I'm in because you're in it with me. Yes. Yeah, uh, it, it's that it's that thing. It's that we are both we're both people. And even if we're on different sides of the war, we can acknowledge each other as people. And it, yeah. in a grand fantasy setting, then usually when you have two characters who each recognize the other as a person rather than a member of the enemy, you can then start swaying hearts and minds on either side. Um, and that's how it is used in, in fantasy quite often to sort of bring bring wars down. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think if, if you are really fighting against someone, there's got to be a level of respect as well, because you've got to respect their intelligence. You've got to respect their ability. Um, or that it's very easy to develop respect for something done well, you know. Yeah. if you're a military strategist or you're a creative or something like that and then you see someone else do something amazing there's going to be a grudging respect there in that okay they've beat me at that that was a clever move or something like that and again that i think these are transformative emotions potentially yeah yeah definitely and not every enemies to love a story has to have a happy ending unfortunately yeah um, and sometimes in this case, it's a, it's one of those things like um, not necessarily the traitor Baru Kulmer, something along those lines where you recognise that either one of them has to be sacrificed for the, the, the long game to be played or mm. in order to 
in in order to you know stop the war between their peoples they've both got to spend time apart they've got to divide because they need one of them on either side yeah kind of scenario um again grand epic fantasy sort of vision uh, other things that make it work it's not a simple fix i mean there's going to be stuff they've got to get over so this relationship this nascent romance will be a work in progress with ups and downs just like any relationship yeah um that is nuance that would make your enemies to love a situation quite plausible yeah now i've seen ones where it's just they're like oh and we'll forget and i'm like hold on a second are we what about all of this stuff yeah we're just gonna brush that under the carpet other people were hurt come on man (laughs) (laughs) yeah um i don't know what you'll think of this example but and it's kind of the the second half of the book. But Wuthering Heights, when you've got the young Catherine and Hareton mm. at the end, and they, they do largely start off as enemies, although Hareton kind of admires her as well. Mm. But, you know, Catherine's been taken away from everything. She's been taken away from her father, her home, and and everything else. She's been swindled out of everything by Heathcliff yeah. and forced to marry her cousin Linton rather than her cousin... <laughs> And uh, yeah, it, she's kind of alone in an enemy household and becomes quite vicious because of it. Whereas Hareton has never known anything except, you know, this casual abuse at Heathcliff's hands. So they're both victims together, but they kind of need to realise that. And then once Heathcliff's out of the picture, they, they, they finally realise there's a friendship there and then more. But it definitely has ups and downs mm. because Hareton comes around before Catherine does. Yeah. And Catherine's kind of like, sort of like, don't touch me. You know, don't come anywhere near me. I would have killed for a kind word a few weeks ago. But you yeah. can basically get stuff now. I don't need anyone. I don't want anything to do with any of you. Not saying that Rothering Heights is a love story, by the way. But it manages <laughs> to sort of balance all the bad poisonous love with something that is heading towards something a bit healthier. Yeah. And I think depending on the character you might have a character who is willing to forgive the actions of somebody else if that is in keeping with their character but you know forgiveness i think particularly in a situation where there's been a long rivalry and there's perhaps been wounds um isn't just a a one-time thing i think sometimes it can take work yeah absolutely and it has to be backed up with action on the other person's side so they Mm -hmm. can't say oh look yeah i'm sorry i killed your whoever um and then keep on killing members of your family and friends you know it doesn't work that way (laughs) bit of a bald example but you know what i mean yeah and i also think that as you've just touched on if there's baggage in their past it needs to be dealt with on the page okay Mm. Um, if you want this to work in, in your book your story or whatever you can't have enemies to lovers and go oh yes you did all these awful things and we're just never going to talk about them ever mm. we're not going to refer to them we're going to pretend they didn't happen Yeah, we're never going to be held accountable yeah, we're for your going actions to, yeah we're just going to rewrite history <laughs> hold on a second <laughs> I hate that I hate that with a vengeance because it's so contrived mm. So, yeah, and I think it does need to be dealt with on the page. Um, And let's, we'll talk about this in another moment, but there are some things that maybe you don't get a redemption for, Mm. as in you might be redeemed as a person, you might go on to become a very different person, but 
the damage is done. So there are some things you kind of don't come back from. Yeah, I agree. And as I said, you might have one person who says, I forgive you. That that doesn't necessarily mean that the whole that everyone <laughs> will. No, absolutely not. Um, and yeah, in, in that particular case, it, it will be very much down to the individual. I think a really good enemies to lovers is when they've both got baggage because they've both inflicted wounds on each other and both annoyed each other and pissed each other off and what have you. Mm. And they both have to learn to let go of that. Yeah, absolutely. And they sort of find their way together and they have those relationship ups and downs as they sort of work their way towards a more healthy relationship with each other. Exactly. And, you know, part of that is redemption, forgiveness, understanding and ultimately honesty. Yeah, which can be a big one, particularly yeah. if they've been at cross purposes for so long. Yeah. Um, yeah. Neither character changes essentially who they are. So I don't want to see convenient, oh, this character is now no longer that person at all. They're acting completely different. Yeah. Now, I don't mind it if it was, you know, actually this character was always really like that. Um, if they were just misunderstood. If that's done properly. Um, like I've seen narratives where it's like, oh well, they're they're sort of like a demon lord or something like that. They've acted in that particular way, and it's like, well, no, actually, um, that's all propaganda. And if you look at them properly, they they've always acted this way. They've always actually been very kind. They've always been very respectful, etc. Yeah, um, that's the kind of Mister Darcy thing, isn't it? Yeah, where absolutely. you've got one character's prejudices, kind of colouring their opinion and they're not really seeing the big picture and then when they're forced to it's that major perspective shift and it's like actually that's not a bad person that's a decent man kind of thing yeah and I think with Darcy as well it was the uh, the fact that his character did change but it it changed in a very he changed in a very natural way in that he got called out and he corrected himself yeah this this wasn't beyond the realms of what he would actually do as a person because no, he was not. already a decent person. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Which is, I guess Pride and Prejudice is kind of the ultimate enemies to lovers, isn't it? Really? It really is, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, and that's the thing. Pride and Prejudice is a Beauty and the Beast story. Mm. And, you know, Beauty and the Beast is kind of, you've got two characters at cross purposes who have to, you know, the point of Beauty and the Beast is they have to find some way to fall in love, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I think Pride and Prejudice takes that theme and um, does even more with it in many ways. Um, yeah. It's not just Darcy who has to change. Obviously, Elizabeth has to as well. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's look at examples of when it doesn't work. Yes. So Enemies to Lovers can obviously be part of a redemption arc, but there are some authors who do not craft that arc well, and what they end up showing the reader is a situation where the abused falls in love with an abuser, uh, which isn't good. No. And this is the trilogy of books I was thinking about when I was doing my drive home that um, gave rise to this episode. Um, Maria V. Schneider wrote the um, Magic Study series, mm -hmm. The Chronicles of Ixia. And the second trilogy is the Opal Cohen series. And in the third book of the original trilogy, Opal is a 14-year-old girl who gets abducted and then tortured um, 
not sort of cut up or, you know, we're not talking medieval torture. We're talking sort of clamps and things used on pressure points. But, you know, she was in pain and that pain was channeled into this illegal um, blood magic. Mm -hmm. Anyway, in her trilogy, she's kind of become tougher. She's, she's, you know, learned the limits of her own abilities and things. And in, in some respects, she's become a more robust person. But mm. she's got this in her past. And then she starts a quest with um, a young man who later turns out to be the man... Sorry, spoilers, guys. Lately, later turns out to be the man who actually tortured her. And they fall in love. And they get together and they adopt children. And it's just... I know that technically he discusses on page that he was addicted to this blood magic and he wasn't acting like himself. Mm. And, you know, Opal sort of comes round to the idea and says, yeah, OK, I understand that you were basically an addict. Therefore, you weren't really accountable for your actions. Mm. And you know what? It doesn't wash for me at all. It doesn't because I think abducting a teenage girl and torturing her, even if it's, you know, for this this addiction type reason, is just not something that you come back from in that same story with that same girl now that she's older. You don't then settle down and have a family with it. That's weird. Yeah, I I don't really get that. So I hated that trilogy in the end because of that. And it's a shame because there was lots of good stuff in the books. But it was also, no, what you're telling me is that she's identifying with her abuser. And I, I'm careful when I say things like that. But that really is how it came across to me. Mm. It was very Stockholm. I mean, people say Stockholm Syndrome about Beauty and the Beast, and I, I will contest that every single time. But this was very much sort of, okay, you've realised that's who he is. Why have you not cut off all ties with him? Or even if you had to work with him, why are you now getting into bed with him? It makes no sense. The Stockholm Syndrome thing is something that the more I look into, the more I narrow my eyes at. Um, yeah. Uh, just, I mean, look, we don't have time to talk about it, but sort of look into the origin guys um it's a bit suspect anyway yes. um <laughs> um i don't know enough i'd be more than willing to continue reading on it but yeah it's it's definitely something which for me to be used in that way and then to be demonst put forward as cut some kind of romance that doesn't feel right to me um i guess it's conceivably possible that someone might do that, but I just, yeah, that, that doesn't feel romantic to me. That just feels incredibly uncomfortable. I think the other problem is that a lot of the, in the, the third book of the first trilogy, a lot of the girls who were being abducted and used that way by other blood magicians were um, being raped as well. So part of the, you know, fear and torture, etc., was sort of sexually abusing them as well. Mm. Opal says in her books, obviously that didn't happen, but I was tied up, abducted, frightened, and had pain inflicted on me. Mm. And I'm at, at that point, I'm kind of like, why are you saying, yeah, but I wasn't raped? It's like, at that point, it kind of doesn't matter because this guy kind of got some sexual gratification out of the magic that he used by doing that to you. So it almost doesn't matter. You can't just say, but at least this didn't happen to well, me. And yeah, this relationship I, is okay. I mean, yeah, I've got to say that um, he didn't rape me isn't, does not a relationship make <laughs> that's just really like gross. That, that is the absolute base level of what you should expect from someone yeah uh yeah i mean 
weirdly enough, it makes me think of the Dark Magician trilogy, obviously with Akarin and Sonya, in yeah. that they they become lovers. Um, and that is an enemies to lovers trope, which does work quite well. And I think they dance that line in that, you know, initially he does he does sort of kidnap her, as it were. He t- kind of takes her hostage. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as she becomes more and more aware of what's going on and the situation and stuff like that, it's not a personal gratification thing for him. It is a we're fighting a war kind of thing and I'm doing my best to protect everybody yeah this and, is survival yeah and rather than kill you um, I can at least control the situation by just having you underneath me and actually teaching you what you need to survive so I think that they balanced that quite well but yeah I've not read the, the Opal Cohen series so I don't know but from what you've just <laughs> described I do not think that would be my jam no um, and they did do another Enemies to Lovers in the Black Magician universe, which was with the second yeah. trilogy, where I... It, it's Regan, isn't it? Regan, yeah. who is Sonya's yeah. bully. Yeah, And Regan, he's... Yeah. yeah, he is horrible, really, really awful during the first trilogy. Yeah. And then weirdly, they're pushed to working together once they're all grown up and they're in their late 30s or whatever. And he's had a horrible time married off to somebody and... I know at the end of the first trilogy, they'd kind of come to a sort of mutually respectful, we're just going to leave each other alone. Yeah. Um, and they end up getting together and it, it really worked. I, you wouldn't think it would work, but it really worked because he has completely grown as a person and she has grown as a person. And there's there's no longer any sort of... Um, he, he no longer sees the class thing. He no longer identifies himself as being wealthy in that way. He's come to admire her in a in a completely different way, um, and yeah, I don't know how Ju- Trudy Canavan just managed to pull it off. It's something mm. that should have absolutely gone down in flames, and yet it completely worked. I think it was good because it was part of what you saw with Rian, um, you know, his development, the which you even saw in the initial trilogy was that he he started off being very snooty, very classist. And then he kind of became a little bit obsessed with Sonia because she was so good. And he couldn't understand initially, given her class, why Akarin had picked her up and stuff like that. Yeah. So there was jealousy. But through that, there was also respect, ultimately. Um, and so you saw that development as he was forced to kind of challenge his own conceptions. And I think the fact that they both grew up and had a chance to both become adults separately yeah Um, and you know it's not like he comes in the past and says oh you know we were just kids or anything like that um he has ultimately grown he he's seen the error of his ways you know that's development (laughs) yeah she says yeah i was a little shit i wish i'd i'd had more guidance from better people earlier in my life yeah i learned a lot of this stuff the hard way and i was an absolute monster um have i ever apologized to you properly and Sonia's kind of like, oh, you don't need to do that. It was, you know, 20 years ago kind of thing. But yeah, yeah. He, he, he is held accountable for his actions. And in comparison to sort of like the invasion of black magicians, it really, they're really kind of like, yeah, actually, you're just the playground bully. It's kind of fine. Yeah. And <laughs> I think in some, for some, in some way, Sonia is almost like you prepared me for the, for the next bit, as it were. Yeah. Um, but yeah. 
See, I can get behind that because he apologises and acknowledges and has changed. So, yeah, and actually, the fact that he's had a a fair bit of suffering over the last twenty years doesn't hurt either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In narrative terms, narratively, um, if if they've if they've suffered a little bit, it's like it's like well, it doesn't make up for everything. But okay, why do you so think other... I'm being so nasty to Zachary? <laughs> Well, but he will, will keep... it make up for it? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, right. So, other other times when it doesn't work. When it's been forced and there was never any chemistry or foreshadowing. Yeah, I've seen this. And it's just sort of like, did you just make the decision, oh, well, this might be sexy or something like that? Like You just these... threw a dart at a board and it's like it landed on that name. Yeah. And I, yeah, I don't understand this because if if it isn't done right, the whole thing—it's not just that it, it feels weird; it get it gets creepy real fast. It really does, and particularly when you then try retconning some of the stuff, yeah, as well. And you're like, "Well, I only did that because I was obsessed with you," and I realise now I was obsessed because I saw from the start what you were, and I was in love with you, and I couldn't admit it to myself. And it's like, okay, back off, stalker dude. <laughs> you know? Yeah, like. That's not. That doesn't make me feel better. You weirdo. <laughs> so this is that classic. I've been watching you all night from across the room. It's like, why don't you go back there and keep watching? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I, and I don't get it. You're never going to sell thing, something like that to me if there's no chemistry. So even if they've hated each other and they've really gone out of their way to wind each other up, I can at least go, yeah, there's clearly some sparks there. Mm. yeah I, I think the big thing for me is that sometimes people write oh there is chemistry and I just don't see it um, and you know they're like oh uh, they were this you know they were a horrible person and yet I was drawn to them and I'm like why because there's nothing it, 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 sometimes writers do it where they, where they say there's chemistry because they want to do this kind of ooh forbidden love friend you know uh enemies yeah. to lovers kind of trope but they haven't actually considered the characters as an, as whole beings onto themselves i think for me this i see a lot of this in the the more sort of paranormal romance type genre mm. where um yeah again you you want that oh he was he was forbidden he was forbidden fruit blah 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 and you both characters are always really good looking you notice that mm. and um okay i I honestly genuinely get, on an intellectual level at least, the, the concept of hate fucking somebody, being really attracted to them, but hating them, and that hatred kind of fueling this this desire. But half the time, even that isn't there. And it's just a case of, I hate you, I'm never going near you, I don't want anything to do with you. And then two chapters later, they're at it like bunnies. And you're like, where the hell did that come from? Yeah. Well, and I, mean, I don't know if it's just I can't see it because I don't look at someone and go oh, you're so good looking, I must have you take me now kind of thing. I don't think I've ever done that in my life. Is that something that I'm just missing? Yeah, I do think that part of it will also come down to very personal choices. It was like when I read the Grisha series and it was like Mal and the Darkling and I was just there like, neither. <laughs> I know. I mean, like, I get that you had to put a romance in because you were writing young adult at that time, but I'm like, none of them 
none of them are doing anything for me at all none of them like yeah like the the one i was most i was like yeah i can get behind this was nikolai the pirate i was like yeah i can get behind this i can i can totally see this the rest of them just couldn't see it at all um i they they kind of obviously changed it a tiny little bit they changed mal's character a little bit in the in the shadow and bone series which kind of makes their relationship feel a little bit more natural to me and ben barnes did a fantastic job as the darkling and the thing is i could see why logically i could see why um alina starkoff might have been attracted to the darkling because i can understand that that draw of the power but also that draw of he was he is lonely and she is lonely and maybe he's the only one on earth who can really understand her um and he's paying attention to her and you know i so i can understand it but i just i guess i never felt the spark really in the book but i won't i won't put that down to being unsuccessful i'll put that down to very personal preference from my point of view because i know that it has been successful and i can understand why so i think that's the difference is sometimes you can you can say all right this isn't working for me but i can understand how it works for the character and sometimes you're like i don't even know how this has happened because it doesn't make sense for the character either it's like that i feel like we've missed like 12 chapters of gradual exposition yeah or something it's just not and it i'm afraid that is a paranormal romance thing there are plenty of paranormal and i don't read a lot of it but when i have read it there are plenty where i've gone okay i don't ship it but i can see why other people do yeah and then there are others where i'm like i have got no idea why you two are in bed together genuinely don't know what's going on right now yeah oh so yeah so that's when it's been forced there's been no foreshadowing or anything like that and it's just or if there has been foreshadowing it's not actually been real foreshadowing um it's it's just been we've just been told that that's what it is and not actually seen any of it i mean i think what can happen and i will be the first one to hold my hand up to this is that sometimes books become series and sometimes series take on a life of their own and become much longer than you intended for them to yes and things happen and things develop but that is your job as a writer to sell along the way so the characters must change in a believable way till they can get to the point whereby you could consider them having a being attracted to each other yeah um uh and i'm sure that's what's happened with sort of some tv series and things where it's a case of no we haven't got a a clear end game romance or anything and they're at each other's throats and then you get to a point sort of season five or whatever and it's like uh there seems to be something there maybe and it's difficult i think with tv series because you don't know if you're about to get (laughs) cancelled a lot of the time so planning something for three seasons ahead can be uh, a tricky one you don't know if you're ever going to come to maturation on it yeah which is always going to be a bit of a downer um the other one is when baggage and history is just completely ignored um as it is inconvenient yes yeah absolutely um and again that's the kind of the opal cohen stuff but also uh, I said I wasn't going to be negative. Go, go on, just do it. Uh, but but Feyre and Resand. Yeah. I think the problem is it was so retconned that, you know, I really enjoyed A Court of Mist and Fury. Mm-hmm. But to say that everything was an act, that he wasn't 
actually just a little bit bad as well just didn't you know the more I think about it <laughs> when when the shatter glass effect happened in book three I was kind of like hang on a minute I've been swindled well I think for me the thing that I didn't like was they could very well you know you could very well have had Resand saying um, because he even admits in the second book, he says, I did terrible things. I had to be a terrible person in order to protect the people that I loved. And that's, you know, that's noble. That is part of his character. That is in keeping with character with him. Um, and he has been cruel. And he, you do see him continue to be cruel. But... Yeah, it, it was almost like, but but everything is always justified. Anything, anything wrong that he has done has turned out to be justified and isn't ever just put down to poor judgment, perhaps, on his part or a moment of weakness. Like, for instance, the thing that always got me, and I've mentioned this before, is the licking, Jules. I'm like, he never explains that at all. That's just very well, no. conveniently... He, he does he does he's like you were you know i could see you letting go so i needed to get a reaction out of you so he, he was trying to disgust her and i was like okay so it definitely worked it definitely worked it did disgust her but the thing that i didn't like was that he clearly got something out of it yeah um you know if he just wanted to disgust her he could have done pretty much anything else it could have been like well i'm just gonna go to the corner here and take a piss that would have been pretty disgusting you know, that would have probably shocked her out of it because she'd have been like, what the hell are you doing? Kind of thing, you know. Um, but he didn't. He licked her face. And we know because he does it again when they're together that this is something that he's actually enjoying. He's actually getting something out of it. And the bit that I really didn't like is that suddenly Feyre's like, I like this. And I was like, you didn't before. You you can't just rewrite this weird behaviour, this disgusting behaviour. And I say disgusting because he licked her face unconsensually, you know, in order to disgust her. Um, and it was rewritten as, actually, this is acceptable because Feyre actually likes it. And I was like, mm, Yeah, that's not good. Th th this isn't working for me. I, it was the one thing I found really disturbing, where I wouldn't have minded actually if he'd addressed it and said, you know, and said, I'm sorry, this was a moment of weakness. I had to disgust you, um, and I did this, and I regret it. Um, you know, because at one point he says, I do regret kissing you at this particular point. I'm like, yeah, I can't... But he says, I regret kissing you at this particular point because it was their first kiss, but it was the kiss that saved her life, you know, to save her life in that moment. Um, yeah. And for me, like, I was like, really? Before I regretted that, I'd regret the face licking. <laughs> Yeah, it's like every so often that should wake you up at about 3am and you should sit there and go, oh, oh. I did that, yeah. Um, and as I mentioned before, uh, one character or both becoming completely unrecognisable and losing all agency. Mm. Which I think is something that happens to Resand a little bit in book three. Yeah. It, it is definitely an issue and it's um it's it's not just Sarah J Mass on that one it's happened in others you see it very much with um again paranormal romance the kick-ass female character suddenly mm. becomes basically a house cat yeah and it's just all the sort of I don't need anyone I don't want a relationship well okay fine maybe you develop as a character and you decide that actually you do want to let someone in 
but going straight for the I just want to be with my man kind of thing. There's no one but us two and it's just ugh. I get that that is the fantasy that's being peddled to a lot of people and the people who like that type of story. Mm. That's kind of where they want it to end. But every time it does my head in. (laughs) Or it's like the character has changed to the point of this is the thing I don't get is that both one character changing drastically in order to now suit and fit the other person yeah. and that character change not really fitting with their entire development like I can understand sometimes a character changing um, in Spinning Silver you have I can't remember his name the king yeah. who, spoilers, he's in a certain situation. He doesn't particularly like his new bride, but he has worked with her. And by the end, he's he basically is captivated by her. He's fallen in love with her. That's a big change in character for him, but it makes sense narratively. Yeah. Because she has just saved him. Yeah, not only has she saved him, she's seen him and genuinely him, not what yeah. he can do or his position or anything and he he i think he just feels the most wanted and protected he has in his entire life yeah and it's kind of yeah that that feeling has a halo effect but he really sees her in that moment too so yeah, yeah i buy that one exactly and i mean it's the same with the staric and miriam that you know that's enemies to lovers as well that's that's brilliant i do <laughs> love that i'm gonna have to reread that book you do realize you that yes <laughs> Um, so yeah, so they come completely unrecognisable, lose all of their agency. Um, you know, it's, it just doesn't work when it's contrived or convenient. It's just, oh, there, well, there we go. We can just tick that box there. But what about all of this? What, what about, what do we do with all these bags? Put them in the back. <laughs> We're going to ignore them yeah. forever. We're never going to unpack them. <laughs> I think part of the problem is that comes with our old friend, the trope by which at the end of a series everyone must be coupled up and it's like some people might just be happy not Mm. or some people might just be happy having a series of short but enjoyable encounters and staying single or doing none of those things you know yeah it that that drives me a bit nuts as well there's a series which i've mentioned before which is called fruits basket yeah and in it the main uh the the head of the house, Akito, has basically traumatised a bunch of kids. <laughs> There's no other way of putting it. She's traumatised okay. a bunch of children. Um, she herself, and this, sorry, this is massive spoilers, it's she. Everyone thinks it's a he, but it's a she. She herself has been horrifically traumatised by her own mother and her own situation, which has caused her to lash out at the people around her. And she's in a position of power and has thus been incredibly cruel to some of these people to the point of being physically abusive. Like she lands one girl in hospital um, and then locks her up in isolation and just leaves her to die and stuff like that. Like really, really cruel stuff. But she's obviously also going through her own thing. And in the end, several of the characters have sort of made peace with her. And they're all, because the curse, basically, that they're all under is broken. And they're all moving forward. And there's this moment where, you know, everyone is sort of, you know, they've, they're they moving forward, they've made peace, they've kind of accepted it. And this 
this character called Rin, or Isuzu, who was the one who was thrown out of a window and landed in the hospital and had a really awful time. She says, I don't understand how you can all do it. I don't understand how you can just forgive her. Even knowing what she went through, I can't just forgive her. And for me, that was a really important part of the manga at the end because it wasn't a satisfying tick, everyone is happy and moving on. It was, no, trauma has left a mark. It's left literal scars on her. Um, and she cannot just forgive and forget. Um, yeah. And what's interesting is that the, the author has now written a sequel series, which is about their kids, where the sins of the parents are sort of laid on, on the children. And the children are the ones who kind of have to be, you know, to take the brunt of it. And Akito's son um, basically has received a lot of abuse because of the way that his mother used to behave. Um and, you know, he says, yes, I can understand that. But to me, that's just my very kind mother who reads to me, you know, before I go to bed and holds me and loves me. Yeah. Um, and f I like that because it's complicated. It shows that not everything can be resolved. Not everything can be tied up in a bow, even if there are people who are willing to say, actually, I want to get on with my life. So I'm just going to put this behind the trauma remains and has to be dealt with time after time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, we've spoken about some examples along the way, and I think we've been better at coming up with good examples than bad ones. But yeah. let's look at some other good examples of the trope. And by good, please read nuanced and believable. So nothing's yeah. perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, yeah, Jules, take us away with the, with the first one here. <laughs> Uh, Buffy and Spike. I realise this is a contentious one because of things that happen in, in season six. Mm. And I really hate that thread. But otherwise, they're an amazing enemies to lovers situation, even though the lovers situation comes at a time when Buffy is vulnerable and should not really be getting involved with anyone, but is incredibly alone. Mm. And Spike still doesn't have a soul, so he can't love on the same terms that she does. Um, weirdly it does end up in a healthy place where they're a healthier place at least where they're both kind of healing from various different things and not um, not sleeping together not confusing the issue with with sex at that point yeah but they always sparked off each other even from when he turned up in the second season hmm. they always really sparked off each other and there were times when he was a pig and there are times when she's just kind of like, okay, it's Spike, I just, I'm just going to beat him up, you know, just because, because it's Spike, which yeah. is not necessarily a healthy attitude either. <laughs> and yet somehow they're the only two who really see each other properly, I think, for a lot of the series. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's chemistry there, I think. Yeah, definitely. They play with it in um, Something Blue, which is in season four, where Willow's kind of going through her breakup with Oz and accidentally manages to curse all her friends and she curses Buffy and Spike to want to get married and they hate each other they're, they're still in the hating each other stage <laughs> and it is very very funny but obviously the writers are kind of like there's chemistry between these two characters let's have some fun with that and I, I really appreciated that Nice. and then the whole stuff of Spike in season 5 going oh god I've fallen in love with her this is not good. This is really bad. This is literally like me falling in love with death. <laughs> this is a terrible idea. <laughs> and trying to fight it and then going through the weird vampire obsessive way. 
in some ways it's a more honest look at that sort of dynamic than Buffy and Angel I think mm, yeah so okay next one Nina and Matthias from a really good one. Six of Crows oh my god I I'm not love over it. it I'm not over it either I love <laughs> their relationship um Obviously, they there's a huge history between the two of them. They're from warring nations. Uh, Matthias is part of the the Fjerden group. They believe the Grisha are all witches. They take them to trial and kill them. Yep, horribly. Or, uh, horribly, yep. Um, and obviously, uh, Nina is a Grisha. And they're put into a situation whereby he has actually captured her. She's on a ship. She's on her way to Fierna to be, you know, he says that you're going to be put on trial. And she says, yeah, but all your trials end in executions. It's not really a trial, is it? You know, you've never found any of us innocent. Um, Now he's, you know, he's got a situation where he's been radicalised because his family were killed by Grisha during, you know, battles. So he has a legitimate reason to be angry at Grisha. And of course, she has a legitimate reason to be angry at Fjerdens, who have been trapping Grisha and murdering them for centuries. Yep. So, you know, there's there's a lot of hate. There's a lot of antagonism between them. Ultimately, their ship is shipwrecked, um, and she sees him bobbing in the water, and the two of them have to work together to survive. Yeah. And then they have to go together to survive. And I think the thing that really works is that they find that actually there's more in common between them than they than they both initially thought. Um, and that he, particularly for him, it's a moment of kind of realising she's a human. And that maybe he has to relearn what he thought initially thought. Yeah. Um, and just as he's beginning to go through that, something happens whereby... He- He's sent straight back to square one. Yes, God. So frustrating. (laughs) It's very frustrating. Uh, But they do have this great kind of dynamic, which is about them relearning past prejudices. Um, And what's really interesting about actually the, the next books, you know, King of Scars and Rule of Wolves, is that Nina, you get to see even more of Nina's journey in that by the end of Crooked Kingdom you have Matthias who has come to the conclusion that he is actually, the Grisha are amazing. He was made to protect Nina. Um, the Grisha are, are, and he's not parted with his religion or his beliefs either. You know, he's just recorrected them um, to sort of include the Grisha and not to just push them out. Um, and he's come to that. He's made peace with that. And in the next two books, you see um Nina actually coming to love and appreciate the Fjerdens, to see them for who they are, that they're not all evil. Um, yeah. And I think it's it's a really, really beautiful part of both of their character development, which is that, spoilers guys, even after he dies, they are still coming together in some ways. He He's still there healing her and bringing her on a new path. Yeah. Which is a small consolation, but yes, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, i tell you what, why don't you field the the next one as well? Yeah, Feyre and Tamlin. Um, So let's just put the other books to the side. Let's just just put them away. 
yes. and just concentrate on Feyre and Tamlin. Um, obviously, this is the Beauty and the Beast narrative, which I'm super into. I love it. Uh, whereby they are enemies. In fact, they're natural-born enemies. He's fey, she's human. His father kept human slaves and stuff like that, you know. Um, his kind have been murdering humans for a long time. And she has just murdered one of his friends. And yeah. then not just killed him, skinned him. You know, as you, do. as you do, as you do. He wasn't the guise of a huge wolf, but she looked at him and she she knew that that was a fairy. To be honest, she she didn't. There was no illusion. She knew that was a fairy. She killed the fairy. She skinned it, and off she trotted. Um, and Tamlin arrives, pretty devastated and very angry. Um, and you know they are enemies. He can't tell her the full situation because he's not allowed to. Um, and she is forced to reanalyze her understanding of fairies based on what they've been told, but also look at Tamlin as a person. And he is forced to actually let go of a lot of prejudices that he grew up with regarding humans. And they do fall in love with one another. Yeah, and it's believable when it's done, I think. It is. It is believable when it's done. Though, like I said, just from very personal perspective, if if it had been me, <laughs> I'd have fallen in love with Lucian. <laughs> he was the more plausible choice in many ways. He was, like, I think a lot of actually, there were quite a few people who were thinking that that was where the love triangle was going to be. Yeah. And then Resand showed up and they were like, oh no, it's this guy. Um... <laughs> This guy. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so the Cruel Prince. T- take us through the Cruel Prince. Okay. Um, the Cruel Prince is book one of Holly Black's Folk of the Air series. Um, mm-hmm. Holly Black is known for her, her fey YA books. And they are, without exception, all of them excellent. They're really, really good. I, you know, read all of them. They're, there's some nasty stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, anyone who's reading The Cruel Prince, don't be shocked when the prince is, in fact, cruel. <laughs> like, genuinely. Um, and the same with her um, her modern fairy tales, which are very gritty as well. Um, same with the, the Darkest Part of the Forest, which is a sort of in-between book between the two series. Again, mm. nasty stuff happens. Uh, that That's the way she writes it. And I have to say, I really appreciate that about them. They're really good. Um, but Jude and Carden in The Cruel Prince. Carden is, in fact, The Cruel Prince. And mm-hmm. Jude is one of the adopted daughters of a red cap who is chief of the the, the army, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, Jude and her sisters, um, her twin sisters mother was human who was married to the red cap and you know they've got an older sister as well who is genuinely half fae but then her mother ran away with a swordsmith who was also human and they went back to the human world and lived mm-hmm. together and had jude and her sister mm-hmm. and obviously the red cap was not going to take that lying down and turned up and slaughtered um her mother and her husband in front of the two girls mm-hmm. And then because it was his honour, they became his children by default. And he took them back to fairy. So they're two girls who have been raised since they were five years old in fairy. Yeah. And they're now approaching 16. And 
basically they've been in a situation where they have been vulnerable their entire lives. They've been frightened their entire lives, particularly Jude. And Jude is something of an, a natural fighter, as in she can't just let things go. She can't just bow and acquiesce. Yeah. Um, but she's been ruthlessly bullied for years by Carden and his friends. Um, not understanding that part of this has come out of the fact that Carden himself is in an abusive situation where he's been passed from family member to family member and they're not treating him well at all. As in, mm. his mother didn't bother to see that he was fed as a child, for example. Yeah. Um, his brother has been regularly sort of beating him. and it's It's only later that she realises some of this. And she doesn't realise it and think, oh, I'm so, I feel so sorry for him. She realises it and thinks, yeah, but it doesn't change anything that he's done. Mm. And they're forced into a situation where they have to work together. And then she royally screws him over because he doesn't want to be king, but she realises that having him as king regent for her younger brother is a better choice than mm. her, for her adopted father becoming king. And he is definitely scheming to go in that direction. Yeah. So she kind of outplays everybody um outmaneuvers them all brilliantly and Cardin is super super pissed at this because the crown's on his head and he can't refuse it <laughs> and it wasn't what he wanted he wanted to continue being a dissolute prince who was drunk all the time and just he is not a fighter he is not good with a sword or anything like that and he wants to carry on just being that waste of space because that's what he's been taught he's good for yeah and as the trilogy goes on they go from you know, hated enemies to, okay, we hate each other, but we're also kind of attracted to each other. Okay, maybe we're uneasy allies. Maybe we're uneasy allies who are kind of getting a bit naked now to, <laughs> oh God, he's now banished me because I've screwed him over one too many times to finally at the end, it looks like we're getting married. <laughs> I am the legitimate queen of fairy. And they're such good books. It's done really, really well. A lot of people have said, oh no, it's awful. He bullied her. She shouldn't have ended up with someone who bullied her. And I think the thing is, how is how are you defining the bullying? Because there is childhood bullying, which gets abandoned when someone becomes an adult and they become a different person. Yeah. And in many ways, Jude frightens the crap out of Cardin, which is why he was constantly going after her. Doesn't yeah. make it okay. But also no. she does a lot of nasty stuff to him too. Yeah. So. I can definitely understand. I think sometimes when people see that, they think of their own childhood bully and they think, well, I would never. That's grosses me out kind of thing. Um, I think if it's done correctly, it can work very well. I think the thing is, it's kind of like the Sonia and Regan situation whereby yeah. she always fought back. She wasn't just this, this miserable little poltroon who was huddling and you know trying to... Sh um, fend off blows being rained down on her she was always fighting back so yeah. in some in her head yes this was someone who had more power than her and was using it but at the same time she was also she she defied him all the mm. way through and the same with Sonia she always fought back she always defied him so she was never completely a victim I think that makes a big difference yeah yeah, absolutely. No, I completely agree. Um, yeah, so I think it can work. I think sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, but also I think sometimes it will come down to very personal preference. I've not read The Cruel Prince. It's been on my reading list for a while, so I think I might have to give it a go. It's definitely up your street. Yeah. That way. 
Um, what about the October Day series? Yeah, the October Day series, is, the 15th book in that series is just released, um, <laughs> which I've muchly enjoyed. But for the first four books of that series, uh, Toby, or October, who is a changeling, so she's half fae, and she's made the changeling choice and said, you know, I want to be like my mother. She's mm-hmm. given the changeling choice when she's seven, not realising that means choosing between being human and being fairy. Yeah. So she's changeling, she has certain abilities, but she's very weak, um, certainly at the start of the series. And she works. As a, she starts off working as a private investigator, which I think has kind of gone by the wayside now because it doesn't really fit in with everything else that's happening in the books. <laughs> She's also a knight of the realm of fairy as well. Um, but there is also a Kate Shea called Tybalt, who is the king of the court of dreaming cats. So he can shift, shapeshift into a cat and he has various other abilities as well. And he doesn't like her at all. He doesn't mm. like changelings. He's really, really against changelings. Doesn't like them. Not a fan. And he especially doesn't like Toby, who is constantly covered in blood and is lewd and is loud and swears a lot and goes out and gets drunk with her friends <laughs> bearing in mind Tybalt was born sort of in Shakespeare's era and kind of grew up around the globe yeah. theatre that is so he's very sort of like no this is not proper behaviour I don't like this at all and yet he can't quite stay away from her and she can't quite stay away from him and they're constantly butting heads with each other and they don't like each other and then eventually it's a case of he ends up helping her and she ends up helping him and they keep teaming up even though they don't like each other until eventually it's kind of like okay I'll admit it I don't dislike you you're really not that bad and then finally it's a sort of big declaration of like no 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 I've been in love with you for months I've been waiting for you to come around (laughs) (laughs) and in this last book spoilers but everyone knows this is happening if they're following the series they've literally just got married Yay. yay but yeah he wasn't like her main antagonist through the series, but he was constantly turning up and making her life more difficult and disapproving of her. <laughs> In the very cat way. I approve. I like that he was called Tybalt. Um, <laughs> aw. Anyway. Um... <laughs> I've talked about the Oaken Throne before. Robin Jarvis. Book is still traumatising to me now, even sort of 25 years later. Um <laughs> It's the war between the squirrels and the bats. I won't go into too much detail because I have mentioned it before, but Isabel, who is the squirrel, basically princess of um, the hazelnut court, which sounds really naff when I say it like that, (laughs) she realises that she's she's basically one of the few surviving princesses who can ascend to the oaken throne. And they find an injured bat along the way who admits that, you know, the bats are moving to war against the squirrels and that's what's happened. That's why the Oaken Throne has fallen. And they end up teaming up and they start off hating each other because their species have always hated each other. They've always been on opposite sides. And then gradually as they move on, they kind of fall in love, which, okay, you're kind of like bat and squirrel. Hmm. Mm. Okay. But (laughs) also children's book, but also, hmm, okay. And yet it really works. You can't help really shipping them, even though they even say themselves, this can't happen because if it does happen, we're just, we're going to be reviled and and shunned everywhere we go because people are going to look at us and say, they're not the same species. Yep. Um, It's Robin Jarvis, so you can count on there being a tragic ending and the love story not panning out as you hope it will. And it doesn't, and it's really, really devastating. (laughs) But it's definitely an enemies-to-lovers, nuanced, um, good portrayal. 
Okay, all right, so I think we should be drawing to a close now, but obviously I kind of want to talk about how we've used this in our own work. <laughs> yeah. Um, with near misses counting. <laughs> yeah, near misses, near misses have to count. Um, in my case, I would have said I haven't really used it except M and Lucas. I was going to say. <laughs> because they start off, well, he starts off very much antagonistic to her, which makes yeah. her very antagonistic to him. Mm. And then you obviously go through the second book and you realise why, at the end, that was an issue. And mm. that there's more to it on his side than hers. And then he turns up again in book four to be really antagonistic to, <laughs> to, to Kieran and sort of to M because he disturbs her peace of mind. And in conjunction with everything else that's going on, she finds herself questioning. So instead of being a teenager who just goes, yes, this is the one for me with Kieran and this is who I want, there's all this other stuff going on where she's kind of being forced to constantly say, you know, is this the decision I should be making right now? And it really messes up her relationship with Kieran. Yeah, it really, really does. And she also has to admit to herself that she is kind of attracted to Lucas. It's it, A lot of it is the music thing. He understands that in a way that a lot of the people don't get. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think for me, Rufus and Faye... When they well, start, yeah, she stopped. <laughs> I was going to say their first meeting. Doesn't she threaten to kill him? She she literally starts strangling him. Yeah. Um, and Yonatan's got to be like, no, no, please, <laughs> please don't. <laughs> it's like Rufus finds out she's a catchy, and he's like, oh no, <laughs> cannot let her know I'm a magi. Cannot let her know I'm a magi. And. And then Yonatan's like, well, you're a major. And Rufus is like, oh no. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, bro. Thanks. Thanks, you asshole. Um, yeah, and obviously, yeah, she does not, she doesn't really like him to begin with. She's very suspicious of him. She forms a grudging kind of respect for him because she sees that he's very loyal to Yonatan and she likes Yonatan. Um, and, you know, but she's quite mistrustful of him because she kind of sees that he's keeping secrets. Yeah, and then when the secret comes out, she's kind of also forced to sort of re, sort of correct her own prejudices and things like that, which is a big part of her journey. Um, and by the end, obviously, the two of them become very close, and she sort of realizes that actually, out of everyone in the group, he has th- that she has seen him, and she's kind of a bit disturbed by how well he has seen her. Yeah. Um, and obviously, yeah, in the second book, she brings him back to the Neve and everyone was like, oh, a major. She's like, oh, yeah, I remember this feeling. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that we definitely have that there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't think have I got it coming up in heart. I have kind of got it coming up in Melanie Beckett, but nobody knows about that yet, really, mm. apart, including Madeline, because obviously that book's not written. No. Um, but no, I don't think I've really got it in Harker and Blackthorn. No, I don't think so. And I don't think I've got it in... It's not really in Kestrel. Yeah, not really. It's whether we, we count 
melon cast, isn't it? <laughs> yes. It's not really enemies. It's more kind of like, oh, you annoying bitch. <laughs> Get out of my way. <laughs> Who stole my breakfast? Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, we shall see. But it's definitely an interesting one. If done properly, I love it. Uh, but I, yeah, I'm a bit wary of it, I think. Yeah, definitely. I don't think it's one to overuse. I, I get why people are so into it. Mm, yeah. Um, but you know what, what What also works really well? Best friends to lovers. Yeah. Yep, I'm, I'm, I'm a slut for that. <laughs> Saying no more, but, you know, that's a good trope too. It's a good trope too. That's chef kiss right there. <laughs> This has right. nothing to do with any of Madeline's current ships. <laughs> Poor Jules. Uh, she has to go through so much. Anyway, um, I think that uh, that's us for today. Before we go, though, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And Jules, I believe that you have got one for us. Yes, um, I recently read a book called The Lighthouse Witches by C.J. Cook, which is out despite me getting an arc of it. Um, it's an interesting sort of gothic folk horror told from several different points of view and it's a bit slipstream in that it sort of jumps back and forward in time a bit. Mm -hmm. um, basically the initial main character has packed up her three children in the middle of the night and mm -hmm. driven them off to a job that she's taken on a remote Scottish island um, and you're not really sure what she's running from to start with. Uh, she works as an artist and she's been asked to paint something very specific in a um, basically this this lighthouse and the attached buildings mm -hmm. that have been bought by a private individual um, and it it's all weird and a bit so I don't I really don't want to give away spoilers but there's stories in the area of um, children being taken and returned with strange numbers carved on them and that's how you know that they're changelings kind of thing and we all know how to deal with changelings in the area kind of mm. uh, amongst the locals in this remote population and it's um it, it's creepy in the the right way i wouldn't say it's actually a scary book but it, it's it's very engaging and you you hop back and forth in time and sort of you have kind of got the witch trials and things in there the scottish witch trials that is Mm. Um, yeah it's interesting it's an interesting spooky little folk horror slipstream book which I recommend it would be a good Halloween read Okay, well past Halloween but it's also yeah. a good winter read it's a good winter read Halloween is con continues until <laughs> until December <laughs> or, or, or maybe even January <laughs> just straight up uh, okay well that sounds really interesting I might have to check that out you know I do love me a good old folk horror and on that note, guys, we're going to say thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders. Or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note 
no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast. <laughs>